Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we head to Qatar to preview Canada's final match of the 2022 World Cup and get a sense of what it's been like to watch the Canadian men compete on one of the greatest stages in sport. We stop in Hawaii to find out more about the world's largest active volcano, Mauna Loa, awoke over the weekend, erupting for the first time in nearly 40 years. We get a preview of a new show on the Chorus Radio Network debuting on Saturday as host Rabina Ahmed Haq tells us about what to expect on what it's worth. And it kicks off with a guest Jeopardy fans in this country will be thrilled to hear from. But first, controversy surrounding the Alberta Sovereignty in a United Canada Act introduced yesterday in that province continued and spread beyond the province's borders today. Critics call it a power grab that gives cabinet extensive and unnecessary powers. Well, Premier Danielle Smith says that just isn't the case. But some in the business community are questioning whether or not the act sends the wrong message to investors. We find out why. The fallout from the introduction of the so-called, well, not so-called, it's called the Alberta Sovereignty in a United Canada Act continued today. It spread well beyond the province's borders. Lots of ink spilled, so to using an old cliche, lots of ink spilled today about this one. Everyone has an opinion on just how much of an overreach it is, how much an affront it is, how harmless it is, how much it defends Alberta's interests. Um a reminder of what exactly it does. Uh, it would give Danielle Smith, the Premier and her cabinet, broad powers to rewrite provincial laws behind closed doors in the name of pushing back against federal legislation deemed, quote, harmful to Alberta's interests. What exactly harmful means is not defined. That's a problem. Um, once harm had been found, quote unquote, cabinet could then adapt provincial laws as it pleased. That's another problem. Now, today, the Premier went to great lengths to explain it's not about a power grab. It's about giving Alberta a bigger say in all this. Uh, but what can be done and what will be done, two different things. In other words, it's already a bit of a mess. There's all kinds of interpretations about what it could really mean out there. And that's a bad thing if you're a government, by the way. So that's what happened today in the legislature. The leader of the opposition, NDP leader Rachel Notley and uh, Daniel Smith, here's what they had to say to each other. She's granting herself the ability to write laws in secret, behind closed doors, no reviews, no checks, no balances. Just an unprecedented abuse of authority. To the Premier, why is her first act an unconstitutional, anti-democratic attack on the democratic rights of Alberta? The Honourable the Premier! Mr. Speaker, and thank you for the question from the Honourable Member. Uh, no, it does not. It's very clear, and every decision that is going to be made has to first get the validation from this Assembly. And what that means is that, that this Assembly will pass a motion and it will give the direction to Cabinet. It will always be the, the direction of the members that we will make decisions in Cabinet. Well, the one thing it isn't is very clear. That may be clear to Danielle Smith, but to many others, it's not clear at all. And again, that's a problem. You don't create legislation of this magnitude and not make sure that it's clear. And this one is just not clear. There's so many different interpretations about what, what it could mean out there today. People are not going to be happy about it. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, don't forget a lot of this is about electioneering and politicking and, you know, making Ottawa the fall guy and all this. The Prime Minister was kind of staying out of it today. We want to continue to be there to deliver for Albertans. There's going to be things that we agree with that government on. There's going to be things we disagree with them on. And my focus is always going to be to be constructive. We're going to see how this plays out. Uh, I'm not going to take anything off the table, but I'm also not looking for a fight. 
not looking for a fight. Well, I think he's got one, but he's not looking for one. We'll see what happens there. Of course, underlying all of this is the idea that Ottawa's legislations are bad for business in Alberta. Really, this must have some benefit to it, or you wouldn't go to all this trouble and create all this chaos within Alberta to try and win these powers back if you didn't think there was going to be some kind of benefit to it. One assumes the benefit would probably be economic, right? But what exactly would the Alberta Sovereignty Act bring to the province's economy? And specifically, what does this uncertainty bring to its investment climate? To help us with that is Deborah Yedlin. She's the CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So this was a much anticipated piece of legislation. I think many people were waiting to see exactly what it looked like. Um, you, You said it went further than expected. How so? Well, we didn't see, we weren't expecting something like cabinet having the ability to force provincial entities to ignore federal laws if they didn't like them. Yeah, what is the impact of that? I mean, there's been a whole lot of debate about that today. The, the amount of ink spilled or keyboards bashed over the last 24 hours on this one. But just from a business perspective, how do you see it? Well, if you are a business and you're thinking of investing or in, in the province or you're thinking of setting up an office or some sort of operation in the, in, in the province, and there's the potential the province may say that there's a regulation that you have to comply with that's federal, but they don't want you to do that because they don't think it's helpful. That introduces a lot of risk in your investment thesis. And that means your cost of capital goes up, which means your returns could be compromised. And that means you will look for another place to invest because capital goes to where it can get the best return. And that means stability of jurisdiction and as little uncertainty as possible. Yeah, I guess uncertainty is the word here, right? Uh, Investment doesn't like uncertainty. And this throws, even today, the debate over what it actually means, how to interpret it, throws uncertainty into the mix. Absolutely. And I think the issue is that from, uh, you know, from a purely business and economic perspective, it's hard to draw a direct line between this act and supporting economic growth and diversification in in the province of Alberta. We've had a tough seven years between the crash in oil prices and then COVID. And we are now on, on firm ground. We are growing the economy. We are diversifying the economy. And we don't need any uncertainty. And so what we'd like to know is, how does this support economic growth going forward? And the answer is not clear. I would have thought that uh, at some point in the creation of this legislation, that uh, people such as yourselves would have been consulted about what the impact might be on the economy. Because clearly one of the whole purposes here is the idea that somehow this will help economic growth. I think that, well, we were not consulted. I can't speak for anybody else. But there is a quite a lot of concern about what this means for Alberta's economy. Everybody's looking for talent. There is a labor shortage in Alberta, as there is across the country. And we have Alberta's calling, an Alberta's calling campaign that is currently active in Ontario. This becomes a values-based conversation. If people see this kind of an act as not supporting their value system, we may not attract the talent that we need to make sure that we can continue to grow the economy. So that's that's how this translates. And businesses are going to be facing more uncertainty than they already do. They're already facing higher costs. They're, high, they're facing higher interest rates. They're facing supply chain issues. And now this is another layer on top of all that. Has it ever been explained, or at least uh, has the government ever tried to explain how this, how they see this helping the investment uh, climate in Alberta? I think this all this goes back to some concern about how 
projects have been approved or not, and the reason for projects not going ahead, pipeline projects, other other initiatives. I think the roots go back to that. There's also been reference to the emissions cap that the federal government has put on the table. And I think that we have a better shot at finding a solution when we collaborate and we have conversations that are constructive. And there's work that is being done, especially on the emissions cap. There's been a lot of work that's been done. Calgary Chamber's been to Ottawa. A number of companies have been to Ottawa. The Pathways to Net Zero Alliance group has been to Ottawa. We're working very hard to to shift it. We don't think that an adversarial approach is going to produce the results that we're looking for. I guess if I if I listen to the premier talk about why this was necessary, it is this this underlying notion that uh, federal legislation has been damaging to Alberta's economy. That there have been attempts made to try to get uh, Ottawa's um, attention on this. That those att- those attempts have been ignored, and this is yet another way of of forcing the issue. Um, is is that is that uh, is that a fair assessment of what you're hearing? There is definitely a sentiment that that looks at what's what the federal government has done and how it has affected investment in Alberta. Certainly, we need more clarity, more certainty, more transparency on regulatory matters when it comes to how we proceed with development of projects, especially in the energy sector. There's no question there is a lot of discontent about how some projects have not gone ahead, and and that's totally fair. The government did buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I will just I will say that, and that will support egress out of out of the oil sands, which is important in terms of oil production. So there are grievances that have merit, but to try and force a conversation or force a resolution is not the best way to approach this kind of challenge. And I, you know, we know that Peter Law hated a very strong stance against Prime Minister Trudeau Sr. about Alberta's, you know, where Alberta stood. And they did find a way to establish a rapprochement and to get to where we needed to go as a province relative to to Ottawa. I guess it's no surprise then that uh, the Prime Minister today was pretty much non-committal, but he just said, I don't want to pick a fight. No. And And he's right. I think that we need to see what happens when the legislation is actually tabled. And we need to see what happens in terms of amendments that are put forward, because what we see today could be very different when it goes through the legislature. Having said that, I think that if we can offer some constructive suggestions to uh, make sure that there are some amendments tabled, that would, you know, that would be probably a better, better outcome than what we're looking at today. Deborah Yedlin, the CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, is with us. We're talking about the Alberta Sovereignty in a United Canada Act, introduced uh, yesterday as the first piece of legislation in uh, Daniel Smith's uh, new government, or government at least. Um, You you suggested perhaps seeing, you'd like to see some changes there. What what would be a good start, do you think? Well, I think that what we'd like to see is looking at that provision about cabinet having the ability to force uh, provincial entities to ignore federal laws. I think that would be a good place to start. Uh, because that has far-reaching consequences and, again, uh, could really compromise companies' decisions to uh, to look at Alberta as a destination for investment. Because I, I guess, and you, you know this better than I do, most companies, when they look at Canada and Alberta, don't see the, the provinces and, and, and Ottawa, don't see the provincial federal spats. I mean, these are all things that happen in any country, in any federal system, but they really see Canada as an investment destination uh, period. They do and they don't. I think, you know, it, there is there is concern about how projects, especially resource projects, are mm-hmm. approved and the length of time it takes to have them approved. 
Uh, so that's something that companies have been talking about for quite a while. Having said that, we also know that um, Minister Sonia Savage, who was energy minister at the time, was at a conference in Norway and was uh, asked about the Sovereignty Act as it was first discussed in the summer and what that meant for Alberta. And she was very surprised that, in fact, it had already traveled to, you know, to the international community and people were asking questions about it. When you look at what's happening south of the border in terms of the Investment Reduction Act and what that's doing potentially to attract investment into the clean tech sector uh, away from Canada because of the way that's structured, this is just one more reason to say, well, I think I'm going to just go somewhere else because I don't have the same amount of uncertainty that I do here. A reminder of just how incredibly competitive it all is right now. Yeah, I mean, we compete, we, we compete not just with the U.S., we compete around the world for capital and for talent. And anything that makes us look less desirable in either of those contexts is not going to be helpful at all. And I think we can go back to 1976 and René Lévesque and the fact that Montreal was the largest city in Canada at the time and how businesses decided that even the specter of any sort of separation was enough for them to either leave the province or significantly downscale their presence in Quebec. And it's taken Montreal decades to recover its economic strength. We don't need that in Alberta, and that's certainly what the Chamber does not want to see. We need to continue to grow the economy, and we need to have uh, a stable and uh, investment envir- environment that's that provides certainty for businesses. As a last question, one of the things you brought up that was interesting is diversification, because I think a lot of people outside Alberta don't realize just how much Alberta's economy continues to shift and change. We often see it as an oil, as you know, as an energy-driven economy, but it's become much more than that. Is there any concern that this, this whole... Um, this whole act, this whole fight with Ottawa is is a bit backward looking? Well, here's the thing. When you talk about the energy transition and what kind of dollars we need to support the development and you know the development of technologies, the implementation, the proving of those new technologies and processes, this is trillions of dollars. And Calgary has an energy transition center and it is going ahead with bringing all the innovators together. There are our clean tech funds, there's a clean resource innovation network, there's the Pathways to Net Zero Alliance. There's so much that's going on from a clean tech perspective. And we need to have the capital flow into the province to support that opportunity because it is a generational opportunity. That's something we're watching very, very, very closely right now. And that's in addition to the fact that we have, you know, ag tech, fintech, there's all sorts of fantastic diversification stories that have taken root in the province. And we're really excited because that means we're not a one-trick pony in terms of what we depend on for our economic activity and economic growth. Deborah Yedlin, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time on this tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, with after all the anticipation, you know, the World Cup can come to an end pretty quickly if you don't make it through to the next round. And so it is for Team Canada. The men will play one last time in about, I think it's about nine and a half hours. Is that about right? Nine and a half hours? 7 a.m. Pacific, uh, 10 a.m. Eastern, as far as I as far as I could tell. Don't don't trust my math on this. Uh, 7 a.m. Pacific for sure. Um, but one last match against a very good Morocco team. Uh, you know, we arrived in Qatar on the heels of qualifying first in CONCACAF. That doesn't happen often. Uh, ahead of uh, Mexico and the U.S., two perennial World Cup uh, participants. So expectations 
weren't super high for the young squad, but there were hopes maybe of a surprise in a tough group against a Belgian team that looked a little bit shaky, a Croatian team we thought might be a little long in the tooth. Um, We fought to a hard loss against Belgium. That's a game Canada could have won. Scored our first ever goal against Croatia. Uh, Alfonso Davies did that, breaking the curse. We hadn't scored yet. We'd played three times in 1986 in Mexico, played once in Qatar, and finally a goal very early in that second game when what was a 4-1 loss to Croatia. But there seems to be quite a bit to celebrate uh, as we build towards 2026, when, of course, Canada is one of three hosts of the World Cup, along with the U.S. and Mexico, so we qualify automatically. We'll be playing, and uh, our young team is gaining some value, valuable experience there. Uh, Canadian star, uh, Bayern Munich star, goal scorer Alfonso Davies, spoke to the media uh, earlier this week about scoring that historic goal and just the experience for the men's team to be in Qatar. And, yeah, I mean, we... You know, we gain a lot of new, you know, supporters around the world. You know, a lot of people thought that, uh, you know, Canada wasn't really a footballing country. And, you know, hopefully after this this tournament, we, we've changed a lot of minds. Now, Morocco is still in a position to qualify. They, in fact, have their destiny in their hands. They can qualify for the round of 16 if they win. So they have a lot to play for. Uh, even a draw could see them go through. Canada has some pride to play for. We're only the third team to lose our first five World Cup matches. Mexico lost their first nine. El Salvador lost their first six. Uh, so there's that. And, um, you know, and an upset. You know, we could play spoiler in all this and allow the um, allow the Croatia, the Belgians, uh, if they were to beat Croatia, which doesn't look likely at this point, but that could happen. Um, but what's it been like to watch Canada compete on perhaps the greatest stage in sports? Joining me now from Qatar is Canadian soccer fan Brad Leach. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Ben, how are you doing? I'm good. Good morning, by the way. I guess it's morning. It's about eight, half past eight in Qatar. Are you set for the, I guess it's a bit bittersweet. It will be the last game, but uh, I guess each one of them looks like they've been a lot of fun for the Canadian crowd. Yeah, it's been a really great experience. And uh, 8.30 in the morning here in Qatar is one of the few times you'll find quiet because <laughs> the uh, games go so late in the day. And uh, by the time you get back from the matches, it's quite late in the night. So um, usually they're just chanting and singing going all night long outside the hotel here. Yeah, I mean, you've you've been to a lot of uh, a lot of tournaments over the years, right? Uh, as you're you're explaining, how does this one rank in terms of sort of atmosphere and and uh, convenience and so on? It's been great. It's been a bit more of, I guess, what I call a football carnival, um, meaning you know, being based in Qatar, everyone's sort of picking teams as we go. Canada, for sure, is a favorite. Um, I'm sure as a lot of your listeners know, everyone loves Canada wherever you go around the world. And it's very much been exhibited here. We've kind of been picked up as an adopted country by a lot of the fans here in Qatar. So this last match against Morocco may see that change a bit. I mean, the uh, the North African and the teams from nearby seem to be getting a lot of support. Um, but uh, this is going to be a big match. Canada, I guess... I guess a Canadian win, obviously, would be fantastic, right? Uh, is is there a sense there that no matter what happens later today, it'll be okay? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like you said, we have a chance to be a spoiler. We have a chance to get our first win. Um, we're, we're, we're definitely being noticed by everyone around the world. Um, having said that, like you say, Morocco needs to win this to go through. It's a, this is a big day. So ran to a lot of Moroccans last night, actually, and they're, uh, well, they're pretty optimistic, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, they beat Belgium, right? They should be uh, they should be feeling yes. good these days. What was it like to see that first yes. Canadian goal? I mean, 
I, I, I watched all three matches. I, I watched, I, I don't think any of us could watch all three matches. I remember watching the matches in 1986 and just the wait for that first goal felt so long, but at last, at long last, a first goal for Canada at the World Cup. Yeah, it took us all by surprise. We just settled into the seats thinking we got a battle on our hands today against Croatia. And uh, before you knew it, that thing went in the back of the net and it was just jubilation. And I know we went down about 10 rows from where we were sitting. <laughs> so it was a special moment. I remember watching back in 86, I had friends on that team. So a lot, obviously the texts have been burning up and emails with, with, uh, with what's happened here. So yeah, it was, it was a great moment. What's it been like just in general to be able to watch uh, the Canadian men play on? I mean, it's hard to overstate just how important and how watched the World Cup is. Uh, what's it been like to watch the Canadian men play on that stage? Just a lot of pride. You know, I, I, I spent most of my life following football and I'm an English national team fan um, from my background with my family. So it's really where I've spent all my time with the World Cup. So to be here with, you know, our, our own jersey on and, and supporting the boys, it's 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 been amazing. So uh, like I say, it, Canada's just, it just, uh, it's dawned on me how much the country has loved everywhere we go. And uh, watching the team perform the way they have, it all comes together. It's just, it's been beautiful. I guess you've bumped into a lot of other, are there a lot of Canadians there? A lot of Canadians, yeah. They're, they're popping up everywhere. <laughs> As they do. And they're, yeah. Because uh, we get the sense from afar that, especially after that first match against Belgium, in which Canada played really well, you know, deserved to walk away with at least a draw, that a lot of the international press, whether it be the British press, uh, were very flattering about the Canadian performance. And I think it sort of won them a spot in uh, in people's hearts after that match. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword because we need to be a little bit... Uh, we need to know that going forward, we're going to have that respect. You know, coming into the Belgian game, I think we just, for lack of better words, we just shocked everybody with how we play football, how we approach the game, how, how John had a positive approach to, to how we play on the field. And, you know, I think uh, Croatia was much more aware than Belgium was going into their match. And Morocco will be the same. And going forward, that's all of for us. We'll be taken a lot more seriously because of how we're playing. So it's a great start. Yeah, I mean, imagine to, to be watching Canada play at a, at a Men's World Cup is, is one great thing. Next time around, you're going to get to watch Canada play at home in a World Cup, which is going to be even more exciting. How much of a, of a preparation do you think this really has been um, for this team, just being having to play under, under this kind of attention and spotlight? Yeah, it, it, I think it's been a great start. I think that when we get home in front of all of our fans for the next one, it's, it's going to motivate the team even more. Uh, the, the age of these players, this experience is just priceless. I mean, they, from the media to all the pressure they're under to just what it takes to play in a World Cup, yeah, we're going to be all that much better for it. And again, I, I would assume it'd be a lot of the same players we're seeing now because they're so young. Yeah, I mean, John Herdman's comments about Croatia got a lot of attention here, and I thought it wasn't necessarily the comments. The lesson in that wasn't the comment. The lesson is that in that was that when you're at the World Cup, anything you say can turn into news. Well, exactly. I, like I say, I follow England, which is probably one of the most scrutinized and you know under pressure teams at all times. No Their manager yeah. can do nothing right, even when, even when they're winning, the fans aren't happy. So yeah, uh, I, I think that I think that, you know the coach can learn here too that you're always under scrutiny globally any comment you make will be taken very seriously 
Yeah, they they always they always you know the the back page of the Daily Mail is is already calling for you know Gareth Southgate Southgate's head before the before the tournament yeah. even starts, right? It's 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 yeah. relentless. Yeah. But it's different in that it sense is. too because you know I th- I think in in Canadian sports oftentimes you know uh, sports media I mean you know we have our scandals and so on, but it's nothing compared to that the scrutiny that we're, that football period, but the World Cup especially is given just the, the sheer number of reporters that are over there looking for stories. I mean it's it's I find it amazing to see from afar yeah i don't know how they can do it and when i say i mean the players and the, and the people that run uh, the association because like i say they're through this is england now they're through the next round and yet they're still just scrutinizing and giving them hell over there <laughs> so it's <laughs> like what do you want you know you're you're winning you're through you look great we got the right draw so but yeah the Canadians yeah. will have to get used to it for me personally, as a football fan, I love it because that's why you follow it. You know, you follow it for the ups and downs, the highs, the lows. And, uh, you know, that's what we're going to get going forward. So I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the World Cup, only one team gets to win, right? So everybody else goes home disappointed in some ways. Um, how's it been just in terms of like all the other, you know, the, the, the stadium atmosphere and so on? Because, you know, there were concerns at the beginning that might be, it might be a little sterile and that the whole beer thing came up. Uh, just as a soccer fan, what's it been like to be able to go see? I'm, I'm assuming you've gone to see other matches as well, right? Obviously. Yeah, I went to the three England matches, uh, the Canadian matches. Our last one is today. I went to Brazil, Serbia. The atmosphere is good. You know, not having alcohol around the stadium sort of diffuses things. So, like I said earlier, it's sort of more of a carnival. Uh, people are having a lot of fun. You feel safe. That The Qatari volunteers and people that work the stadiums, they're just unbelievable. They're so patient and nice. They've been so accommodating. And they're, they're very curious. You know, they just seem curious about, you know, the Westerners. And uh, lots of questions for us. And, you know, just like I say, it's just been a, you know, I think the world kind of needs it. Everyone's come together and just having a really good time. And I guess it must be strange to have all the stadiums so so close together because even when they play in Europe, I mean, you don't get to see eleven matches in a in a week, right? I mean, it's tough. Yeah, no, they're nice and close. Uh, I guess the only criticism I would have is how far the transportation gets you away from the stadium. We're doing a lot of walking, right. so getting my steps in every day—that's for sure. But um, they're very organized, super super structured. I thought it would be a lot looser than it is. Um, compared yeah. to other events I've been to. So, no, kudos to them. They've, they've executed it great. There's been no worries at all. Those parking lots look massive <laughs> from, from afar. Oh, I guess long that, walk. Is that, <laughs> yeah. And I've spent time, I mean, it, it is December, but it's not, it's, it's, it's always hot. Yeah, very warm here, but, but manageable. I mean, I mean, I could see why they had it in the wintertime at this point because I couldn't imagine it being in the summer. So I guess I don't have to ask you who you're going to cheer for now that uh, that Canada plays its final match. I guess it's it's England all the way. Do you think they have a, think they have a good chance this time around? They look good. I do. Uh, I like the draw out of the gates here against Senegal. Um, I think they can be handled. Um, that last match with the changes that they made, uh, yeah, I think England's looking good. Um, but there's, for me, there's always Brazil, um, and and that for me it would be the dream final if they could work it out. They could be Brazil England. Brazil, England. Wow, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. Yeah. And uh, any predictions yeah. for Canada t- uh, a little later today? I guess it's a little later today for you, tomorrow morning for the rest of us? Yeah, I think it's eight or nine hours away. Um, yeah. I hate to say it, but I think Morocco has so much to play for, and they are young and they are fit as well uh, with players scattered all across Europe. So top, top team. Um, I Earlier before I even got here, I'd called it a 1-1 draw. 
So I'll just stick to that. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be great to see Canada pick up its first point. The Canadian men pick up their first yes. point at the World Cup to go home with. And in that way, the chances of... Uh, the chances of the Moroccans qualifying is probably pretty high too. Well, Croatia, Belgium, who knows, right? Who knows what could happen in that match? Exactly. Who knows? It's, and people have, you know, Belgium's taking a beating, but it is Belgium with some of the most world-class players on earth on the gathered on that team. How they have not won so far is beyond me. Or sorry, how, well, they, how, I, how they've struggled a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure the Belgian press is, is full of, full of angry oh, yeah. words. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for taking the time. Enjoy Canada's last match at the 2022 World Cup. And uh, yeah, we'll be watching. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Let's head to Hawaii now, because I'm sure you must have seen this over the weekend. Mauna Loa, which to you, some of you may just be a crossword puzzle clue, but is really maybe one of the most famous volcanoes in the world, uh, is the largest active volcano, I believe, in the world, erupted for the first time since 1984, speaking of, you know, a time when albums were popular. Um, So for the first time in nearly four decades, up it goes. Uh, There were lava flows shooting up, or lava was shooting 30 to 60 meters high. It doesn't seem to pose much of a threat right now to populated areas. That's the good news. But it started at about 11.30 p.m. local time on Sunday. It's visible from Kona, a place that if you've been to the Big Island or the island of Hawaii, Hawaii, you've been there, um, a tourist destination on the West Coast. And again, back in 1984, so it's been, you know, 38 years since the last time it erupted. Um, now, of course, it is spectacular, so lots of people are going to watch it. Um, but it's also dredging up some bad memories for some Hawaii residents who've been through volcanic experiences in the past. Local resident Willette Kalao Kawaku Akima'akao says this volcanic eruption is momentous. This is the time for our kupuna, for our people and for our children to come and witness what is happening as history is being made every day. Now, there are no evacuation orders right now, but they've opened some shelters there just in case. Uh, a main highway linking towns east, uh, linking, linking towns between the east and west coast of, of uh, Big Island between Hilo and, uh, and Kona uh, just had huge amounts of traffic on it as people are stopping to watch and so on. Thousands of cars uh, jamming the highway near Volcanoes National Park. Well, joining me now with more on this is Scott Rowland. He's with the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Scott. You're very welcome. Aloha. This has been. This is always such a big deal. Uh, but uh, Mauna Loa is sort of one of those volcanoes that uh, that occupies quite the quite the spot in the popular imagination, doesn't it? I, I think so. I, I think partly it's because it has not been as active as Kilauea has for the last during the last 50, 60 years. It's also I think most most people who follow volcanoes at all recognize it as being the largest active volcano on earth so it's got a bit of a mystique so tell me about sunday uh it had been sort of asleep for a while i was going to say dormant but that's the wrong term uh, i guess but it had been uh and suddenly activity on on sunday evening was there any warning uh ahead of time as to what was about to happen Did, did people know this was going to happen that night no certainly nobody knew it was going to happen that night However, Mauna Loa had been in a state of unrest for at least a couple months with elevated seismicity and uh, measurable deformation of the summit area. So the volcano was swelling. And and so certainly the scientists knew that an, an eruption could happen. I think most people expected a little bit longer time of elevated seismicity 
before this particular eruption took place. Uh, so as with essentially all volcanic eruptions, it's it's easy to say that the volcano is is in a state of unrest, but it's almost impossible to say the date or hour that that an eruption is going to happen. So the warning signs are there, but uh, but there's no de no definitive uh, ability to predict if and when. Um, not much. I mean, I, I think a lot of people where I am uh, in BC right now think back to sort of Mount St. Helens. Uh, Mauna Loa doesn't blow its top, so to speak, right? It, it, it's it's a relatively um, it's not explosive. I gather if I can if that's, I'm using the right term. <laughs> that, that's very correct. Yeah. Uh, Mauna Loa and and all Hawaiian volcanoes erupt in a very different manner than Mount St. Helens does. And that's because the magma that erupts from Hawaiian volcanoes is hotter and much more fluid and doesn't contain as much gas as that which erupts from Mount St. Helens. So even though there is some gas in the magma, the, the viscosity of the magma is low. So those gas bubbles can escape relatively easily and therefore they cannot build up pressure which would then explode. And it's so it's far. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, well, go ahead. So it's the expansion of the gas bubbles in the magma that drives the lava fountains that you see on the web. Um, there's some spectacular photos of lava fountains, and I think you mentioned they were 50 meters high or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there is some, certainly there's some expanding gas that's driving those fountains, but it's it's able to escape relatively easily, unlike at volcanoes such as Mount St. Helens. One always thinks of the eruption of the world's largest active volcano might cause a certain amount of panic and concern, but it seems in this case that given the way it is, uh, it has erupted, where the lava flows are going, there isn't a lot of concern right now. At least it's not threatening communities just yet. Why is that? Well, Mauna Loa is, is pretty big, and and much of it is does not have <clears throat> excuse me does not have communities living on it, uh, so. If there were going to be an eruption of Mauna, of Mauna Loa, the current one is sending lava flows in about the best place you can imagine. Um, it's it's going down the north north flank into an area of relatively low slopes, so the lava flows are going to slow down considerably. And again, there's there's no inhabited areas nearby. Um, it, if the lava flows had erupted out of the southwest rift zone instead then it would have been a much different story. Um, Downslope from the Southwest Rift Zone are uh, lots and lots of communities, mostly small, um, but the slopes of that part of the volcano are much steeper. So the lava flows that do erupt from the Southwest Rift Zone based on historic accounts go a lot faster. And, and in 1950, for example, lava made it from the Rift Zone to the ocean in only a few hours. And in 1950, there were way fewer people living on that part of Mauna Loa. Today, there are, you know, many thousands more living there. And, and you know, being given only a few hours to evacuate your house, that's not very long. Um, no. So, so that would have been much more serious. Yeah, I mean, I've been there, uh, and you know, we saw Kilauea, we saw Mauna Loa. I mean, it's it, you don't even know you're on Mauna Loa because it's so big, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. not the way you normally picture having seen volcanoes in places like Ecuador and so on. It's a very different experience um, right. when you see Mauna Loa. Um, I, is it was it in 1950 that that sort of part of the town of where Hilo is now was created on what was left of that lava? 
No, I'm, no, um, it was Hilo, earlier. Hilo right? is, uh, yeah. So Hilo is on a Mauna Loa lava flow, but it's about fourteen hundred years old. Right. Um, I I wonder if you're thinking of the the lava flow that the Keahole Kona Airport sits on, and right, and, perhaps, perhaps. So that's that's actually from a volcano called Hualalai, and it that lava flow erupted in eighteen eighteen o one. Okay. Um, I guess people will be keeping an eye, though, on on clearly keeping an eye on the lava flows to see if if they sure. do start to. Uh, what is there any sense of what the risk of that is right now? At the moment, and I only know what I've seen on websites. I don't have any, you know, special communication with the volcanologists. Right. But from what I've seen on websites and from their reports online, the flow fronts have slowed considerably mostly because they've come down off slightly steeper slopes and are now in what's called a saddle. And it's the, low, the sort of relatively flat area between Mauna Loa and Mauna Kea. And in fact, the, the highway that I think you mentioned a moment ago is called the Saddle Road. Mm -hmm. And it's because it goes through that, that saddle-shaped area between those two volcanoes. Um, so it's approaching ground that's almost horizontal. And that's going to cause the flows to slow down considerably. And, and as long as new flows don't break out, which doesn't seem like is happening, uh, that's going to be the situation for at least the next few days. If the eruption continues for a long, long time, eventually the flows will decide to go either down slope to the east or down slope to the west. And eventually it gets a little steeper and they might speed up somewhat. But at least for the next few days, I think the flows are not going to be moving very fast. Uh, I was interested in, in people, a lot of people talking about VOG today, uh, Scott. Uh, I guess it's volcanic smog. Is that a concern, I guess, in, in the area, something people are watching out for? Actually, it's not so much a concern, mainly because the erupting vent is at a relatively high elevation. Right. And so the, the, most of the plume, which consists of sulfur dioxide and water vapor, uh, which combine to make the little droplets of sulfuric acid, which is what VOG is. Most of the plume is staying high and not mixing down low where where people are. Uh, th that's unlike Kilauea, which, as you said, you, you went to visit. At mm -hmm. Kilauea, the, the vents are considerably lower, and so the VOG is kind of at the elevation of the people. Yeah, Kilauea is still erupting away, isn't it? it? That's true. That is true. So there is VOG from Kilauea that's being produced. And certainly there is VOG being produced by Mauna Loa. But again, it's it's staying high. So I guess for the time being, really, the biggest uh, the biggest threat is traffic jams, right? I mean, there's been a lot I, of people I, flocking to go watch it. I think you're right. It's, it's a very well-used highway, and people drive pretty fast along there. And I, I think it would be pretty hazardous to be <laughs> walking along that highway in the dark um, with with distracted drivers whizzing by. I imagine that every time uh, something like Mauna Loa erupts, it gives an opportunity for scientists to look in to find out new things about it. What, uh, what, maybe we, what might we be looking for this time around? That's a good question. I, I think... One of the things that Mauna Loa is, is pretty well known for are these long lava channels. And I think, you know, you see these in all in many of the helicopter images. And, and these are naturally formed channels. Basically, the, 
the sides of a lava flow cool and stagnate, whereas the middle keeps flowing. And these channels allow lava to flow to the flow front relatively efficiently. It's not as efficient as a lava tube where it's completely covered over, but it's still more efficient than flowing on, on cold ground. Anyway, lava channels are, are found on other volcanoes and they're also found on other planets. And in fact, much of the, the study of lava channels has been done by people who mostly study volcanoes on, on Mars and Venus and the moon. And so whenever Mauna Loa erupts, the, the chance to, to observe these long channels from vent to flow front is somewhat, you know, I mean, it's pretty unprecedented. I mean, Kilauea flows produce channels as well, but they're usually not as long just because Kilauea is not as big a volcano and the lava doesn't have to flow very far before it goes into the ocean. On Mauna Loa, the other hand, because it's so big, the channels can be tens of kilometers long and how these channels develop, how they evolve with time, et cetera, is something that, that not only terrestrial geologists, but planetary geologists like to study quite a bit. And of course, there's always a lot of interest in the chemistry of the lavas, which can tell us about how, how long it was stored in the volcano, what processes it underwent while it was in the volcano, and and so on and and these can be used for um you know understanding the plumbing system of the volcano the supply rate to the volcano and and things like that there are also studies of the seismicity associated with the onset of the eruption as well as the ongoing seismicity and and these these two are interest are you know important to understand so there's a huge amount of data are being collected during the eruption and and people are going to be using these data for, for years to come. Scott Rowland, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome. Take care. It is a tough time for many Canadians trying to make do with less as salaries and benefits lag behind the cost of living. Um, so what better time to welcome a new show to the Chorus Radio Network family devoted to those very topics and much more for what it's worth it will be hosted uh, by a name that many listeners will be familiar with. The show, of course, is called For What It's Worth. I wasn't just saying that. Uh, Rabina Ahmed Haq is a frequent guest and contributor on Money Matters, including a 640 Toronto's uh, personal finance expert. And she joins me now. Thanks for your time. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, so much to talk about these days. It feels like such a timely time, to, to use that word twice, to debut a show like this. What's been on the top of your list of things you've been looking at of late? I mean, cost of living is top of mind for everyone. So whether you've been able to keep your job during the pandemic and financially you're feeling a little bit more comfortable, you're still getting that sticker shock every time you go to the grocery store, you fill up your gas tank, um, any anything you do. It's amazing how much more things cost now compared to just a year ago and how we continue to be surprised by our bills. Um, and for the other group of people who have seen their st job stop and start, um, they're in a really precarious position where uh, 
they have had to take out loans in order to just pay their day-to-day bills. They've relied on emergency funds in order to, uh, or emergency rather benefits in order to get through uh, the pandemic. And now they're faced with a recession. And often those individuals who are most affected by pandemic shutdowns were those in industries that are more recession, uh, more affected by recession, tourism, restaurants, uh, places where we don't spend when a recession is imminent. Yeah, I mean, even your own experience, I know, is a reminder that when times are tough, a lot of us realize that we don't know as much about personal finance as we would probably like to. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping to do on For What It's Worth, is to make business, economic, personal finance, workplace news accessible. Because often when we turn on business news, they use terminology that really just, we just glaze over. It feels like, it feels unaccessible. It feels like it doesn't really speak to you. And I want to change that conversation. I really want people to feel like when they hear whatever guests that I have on, that they're speaking to them, that they can find a nugget in there where they walk away and they say, you know what? I think I learned something about my money today. Uh, This week on our first show, we have Matea Roach. She's the 23 time winner of Jeopardy, the the most successful Canadian Jeopardy contestant. And the reason I wanted to have her on was she won what is uh, the equivalent of $760,000 Canadian in a very short amount of time. And I wanted to ask her how she was managing this money, this windfall from this game show win, because um, this is something that does happen, maybe not at that grand scale in our, in our lives, where we might get an inheritance, we might get a bump in pay at our job, we might win the lottery, which is probably the most unlikely. Uh, but what do you do when that happens, when you have that positive financial news? And it was really inspiring to hear how she's managing her money. And I think listeners will be surprised to learn how little she's actually spent of that cash. So when they walk away, they're going to say, you know, if, if if someone who's come into that much money can manage their money well and stay within their budget, not live without outside of their means, I think I can do it too. No doubt. I think my chances of winning the lottery are probably higher than beating Matteo Roach at, uh, at Jeopardy. But yeah, that's a great probably. way of looking at it. <laughs> Mine yeah, as well, so, yes. Exactly. Because so many of us, I mean, something like an inheritance or so on, we struggle sometimes with a sudden windfall and how to manage it properly, what to do with it, how to make it grow and how to make sure that it lasts for longer than just, you know, the, the immediate, um, you know, the immediate high of having it, I guess. Yeah, and how not to change our financial values. I mean, I really wanted to start with some positive stories uh, in the first show, and I felt felt like she was someone that I watched really carefully or very closely, and our family sort of fell in love with her, just just her sort of very sort of affable personalities, whip smart, all those things that, you know, just make you want to watch more and more of her. Uh, But we still have, you know, more serious topics on. We'll have a financial advisor on to talk about what's happening in the markets right now, what people should be doing with their investments if they're worried because day-to-day things are changing so dramatically um, and what advice he has for people who are close to retirement, those who are starting out in their job. I mean, imagine getting your first full-time job in this environment. How do you save for you know a, a, an event that's going to be happening 40 years from now and then on top of it with markets being vo- so volatile, you're wondering, should I even be putting my money into the stock market right now? So we'll have him answering those kind of questions and that's the kind of conversations I want to have is really speak 
to everyday Canadians, speak to people that, uh, you know, the conversations that we're having when we meet, meet up with friends during the holidays about how much the cost of living has gone up, how worried we are about our own retirement plans, um, if we have money for a rainy day. I think these are things that we're becoming more comfortable having conversations about because, um, you know, according to surveys, we are learning more and more about our financial literacy. We have a, we have an appetite for that. And so one way we learn is by talking about it with our friends and family. And hopefully this is what it's going to feel like. Yeah, I think Financial Literacy Month is coming to an end, actually. Is that is that November? I believe it is, because we did speak about this. Uh, I'm just trying to remember how long ago it was. But yeah, I mean, financial, there is a huge, and I think you pointed out that back during the uh, great financial crisis more than a decade ago now, that was sort of an impetus of yours to really find out more about personal finance. I think a lot of people, when times are tough, simply want to know more about how to better manage their money. Yeah. So at the time of 2008, 2009 crisis, and you're right, this is Financial Literacy Month, November in the month, right. uh, month of November in Canada. But um, going back to your first, your other point, um, you know, I was working at the TSX Broadcast Center, which is where a lot of business types come to do, um, you know, hits with national TV sure. and radio because it's, it's, it's a broadcast center that's set up. And at that time, I started recognizing that, you know, there was a lot of people coming in that were that very, very, very impressive titles and you know we're CEOs of banks in some cases but a lot of what they were saying was kind of just going over everyone's head and so I started putting myself out there and talking about personal finance absorbing what they were saying and kind of making it more accessible for the everyday person because really they're speaking to a very very small percentage of people that actually are taking their information and understanding it and as you know as I got started getting more and more interested in personal finance I started realizing that this is really um, something that is ne necessary uh, where Canadians, you know, when something like the news comes out that RBC has bought HSBC Bank, well, what does that mean? Why do I care? I don't bank with either of those places. Why do I care about that? And so those are the kinds of stories that I want to talk about so that, you know, people should know that they should care, even if they don't bank, that it's less competition and that it's, and you may not get those really low mortgage rates that HSBC is is famous for offering in the spring and banks don't won't feel that they have to to, uh, compete with those low mortgage rates. And so we might be faced with even higher mortgage rates in, in the future because the bank that was more than likely to offer the lowest rate is no longer uh, in the game. Rabita Ahmed Haq, thank you so much. Welcome, uh, congratulations. Saturday mornings, I believe, at 9 a.m. Uh, will be December the 3rd is the debut for what it's worth. Uh, Matea Roach, a great first guest. Look forward to hearing it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.